The following is a recording of a discourse by the Anglican priest John Norris, who lived from 1657 to 1711 and was rector at Bimmerton near Salisbury in England. Norris was a leading figure in philosophy during his time and one of the most widely read intellectuals in England, his book on faith and reason, for example, being so well read that it went through 14 editions, the last of which was published in 1790. Norris published many full-length books on philosophy and theology, ranging from The Nature of Love, God's Existence in Nature, Reason and Faith, The Immortality of the Soul, Free Will, as well as various treatises on the Christian virtues. He was also quite engaged with specific heterodox issues at the time, countering Sicinian texts, for example, John Toland's Christianity Not Mysterious is a primary target of his book on reason and faith, and also engaging specifically against the Quakers in multiple publications. But Norris is a mysteriously forgotten figure in history. Once at the first rank of the golden age of being an intellectual in early modern Europe, to a completely forgotten figure that nobody really read anymore about a century later. Norris's philosophical rigor is perhaps best seen in what I think is a profound clarification and defense of Descartes' real distinction of soul and body against his contemporary John Locke's famous claim of the possibility of thinking matter, namely, that we may never know by our own ideas whether God has disposed or given any system of matter the power of perception or thought. Norris wrote a two-volume treatise between 1701 and 1704 that runs over a thousand pages defending his system of Christian Platonism, called An Essay Towards the Theory of the Ideal or Intelligible World, probably his greatest work of philosophy. I believe his fall from relevancy in intellectual history is due to a number of arbitrary reasons. Norris doesn't really fit in neatly with any narrative we're told about the development of modern philosophy. And Norris is accused of being unoriginal due to his adaptation of various arguments that he discovered in Malbranche. But a serious engagement with Norris's text shows this to be both uncharitable and unfair. And Norris was a lot more original than given credit for. The ink of Norris's pen frequently was spilled in writing about the nature of love. There are a number of relevant shorter writings on happiness, friendship, and love throughout his published works. He published two full books on the topic of love in general, The Theory and Regulation of Love in 1688 and his correspondence with Mary Astow, Letters Concerning the Love of God in 1695. The fairly short discourse I have recorded here is one of a number of relevant texts within Norris's whole body of writings on the nature and ground of love. This text, A Discourse on the Natural and Moral Union of the Soul with God, as the title suggests, concerns the soul's union with God, both natural and moral, and the perfections the soul receives by these two senses of union. As will quickly become evident, Norris believes that the proper, immediate, and only object of human knowledge and love is God, which he argues for extensively in various other texts. The text is from the third volume of Norris's Practical Discourses upon Several Divine Subjects, published in 1693. A link to this text will be in the description. 
I think it may be helpful for listeners to hear at least a paraphrase or summary of Father Malbranche's preface of the search after truth here, which has a strong emphasis on our unbreakable and essential union with God, which Norris elaborates on in this discourse. Indeed, the entire body of his metaphysics can be seen as placing our intimate union with God on its proper philosophical foundation, for he claims that Malbranche left things half done, and Norris considered his grand text on the ideal or intelligible world as the completion of Malbranche's project, putting this Christian Platonist metaphysics on its proper foundation. The following is a summary. Malbranche says, Our soul is between God and corporeal things. Just as the mind's exalted position above material things doesn't prevent it from being joined to them, and, in a manner of speaking, depending on them, so the infinite distance between God and the soul prevent it from being joined to God intimately. Our union with God raises the mind above all things, from which, echoing John's gospel, it receives its life, its light, and its felicity. Conversely, our union with the body debases us because it is the source of all error and misery. However, since we are made in the image of God, our mind is united with God in a closer and more essential way than it is to our body. The relation our soul has to our body can cease, but the relation it has to God is so essential that God could not conceivably create a mind without it. Further, God can only create minds to know and love him, for he can't endow them with any knowledge or love that is not for him or tends toward him. But God could have created minds that are not joined to bodies. Unfortunately, original sin has weakened our union with God to such an extent that this union seems imaginary to many. This is because original sin has strengthened our union with the body that it appears that the soul and body are the same substance, and even the more important of the two. And this is evident when we look at the actions of people in general and see them desiring happiness and felicity by placing the highest value on goods of the body and material goods. Yet people are not unaware that they have a soul and that it is the most important part of their being and are constantly reminded in the sequence of events both that the goods of the body do not constitute their happiness, and that goods of the soul are superior to those of the body. For example, it is better to be just than to be rich, or to be reasonable than to be learned. Though the soul is closely joined to the body, it is still joined to God, such that even while it receives all these lively and confused sensations in the body, it is swept by the passions. It is informed both of its duty and its disorders by the eternal truth that presides over its mind. See, for example, St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 10. This has the comforting result that no matter how much the body deceives us, God is here to set things right for us. No matter how far one is lost in the constant strengthening of union with sensible things, the soul's union with God can never be broken. It's impossible, as to break this union would also destroy our being. 
This means that no matter how lost we are in vice or numb and insensible we are to the truth, we are still joined to it. The truth will not abandon us. Only we can abandon the truth. Our union with the body diminishes as our union with God increases, but it is only entirely broken by our death. This is why scripture often speaks of the soul becoming purer as its union with God increases, because this union constitutes the mind's perfection. And the mind becoming weakened and corrupted when its union with the body increases, which constitutes its entire imperfection. And even if we were as enlightened as the apostles, there is still some necessity stemming from original sin that we should feel the law of our flesh resisting and constantly opposing the law of the mind. And our mind to have this kind of dependence on the body. But when we determine to consult God and turn our minds to him, he will not deceive us. St. Augustine says that the eternal wisdom is the source of all creatures capable of understanding, and this immutable wisdom never ceases speaking to his creatures in the most secret recesses of their reason, so that they might be inclined toward him. Their source because only the eternal wisdom gives minds being and completes them by giving them the ultimate perfection they are capable of. This is why scripture tells us that when we see God as he is in himself, we will be like unto him. First epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 2. And that the body weighs down the soul. Book of Wisdom, chapter 9, verse 15 such that the mind constantly withdraws itself from the presence of God and the inner light that illumines it, and it strives to strengthen its union with physical things and forces the soul to represent things not as they are truly in themselves. The Book of Wisdom, chapter 9, explains this aptly by telling us that the body fills the mind with so many sensations that it becomes incapable of knowing things that are at all hidden, so that there is there a great difficulty in clearly seeing a given truth with the soul's eyes while we were using the body's eyes to know it. This seems to be imparted by Christ himself, as if to teach us through his incarnation, where, having exalted a body to the highest conceivable degree, he showed the degradation to which he reduced this same body, the contempt we ought to ultimately give objects of sense. And when St. Paul says that he no longer knew Christ according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he seems to mean that it is not the flesh of Christ, but the mind concealed by the flesh that should be the object of our attention. Now for the Discourse by John Norris. A Discourse of the Natural and Moral Union of the Soul with God and of the Perfection that Accrues to It from Thence by Father John Norris. It is good for me to draw near to God. Psalm 73, verse 28. 
The natural and inward perfection of human nature bears so little proportion to the capacities and desires of the same nature, and men are withal so inwardly conscious and sensible of this disproportion between what they are and what they naturally crave and aspire to, that they all with one general consent agree, like men in a famine, to go out of themselves and their homes to seek abroad for provision, to strengthen their slender interest by some foreign ally, and to unite themselves to some other being for the further perfection and supplement of their own. Thus far all men agree to go out of themselves for their good and happiness, and perhaps tis the only thing wherein they do so, and you will scarce ever after this be able to meet with them all together again. For no sooner are they out of themselves, but they immediately divide and take several paths, and apply themselves to several objects, as their reason or their sense leads them, some directing their motion towards God, and some towards the creature. Those that direct their motion towards the creature travel so thick and full, in such crowds and companies, that they have scarce room to pass in without elbowing and jostling one another, so that they are ready to quarrel about the way as well as the end, while in the meantime those that direct their motion towards God are so very thin and few, here and there a straggling passenger, that did they not travel by a good light and were well assured of their way, the very singularity of their choice would be such an objection against it that they would be tempted to change roads and be where there is most company. But the path of the just, as the wise man tells us, is as the shining light, a path which, like the Milky Way in the heavens, discovers and distinguishes itself by its own brightness, and those that travel in this bright shining road are children of light of good sense and understanding, of great judgment, and of great consideration, very wise, knowing and discerning persons. And they show their judgment by the wisdom of their choice, by the excellency of their aim, in that they do not propose or endeavor a union of themselves with the creature, which would be but to join cipher to cipher, vanity to vanity, whence the product would be nothing but with him who is their true and only good, and whose union will perfect and better their natures, of the number of which few wise persons that travel in this shining path is the psalmist here in the text, who, through all the pomp and glitter of a court, could so clearly discern his true good that he would not go out of himself to join himself with that which is as vain as himself but thus expresses and justifies his better choice. It is good for me to draw near unto God. To draw near unto God, which rendering is very much according to the Hebrew and well expresses the signification of the word in the text. In the Septuagint, it is to be glued fast to God. And so the vulgar Latin, bonum est mihi deo adherere, it is good for me to adhere or stick close to God, which is also followed by our other English translation. It is good for me to hold me fast by God. But this variety of expression, 
makes no material difference in the sense, which comes all to one at last and furnishes us with one and the same matter for our discourse and meditation. For we have here the psalmist choice and the reason or justification of that choice, the choice implied, the reason of it expressed. His choice here implied is to be nearly and closely united to God. His reason for it is, because such a union will be for his good, and redound to the happiness and perfection of his being. It is good for me to draw near unto God. But to make my discourse run the more light and easy, I shall charge it with no more than what is directly and expressly contained in the text, which will all resolve into this single proposition, that the perfection of the soul is her union with God. For the better illustration of which noble and divine theorem, I shall first consider several ways of our union with God, and secondly, the perfection which results from each, whereby it will evidently appear that the perfection of the soul is her union with God. And first, of the union of the soul with God. This is either natural or moral. First, there is a natural union between God and the soul, as indeed there is between God and everything else. For if God has an infinite essence, he must have also an infinite presence. He must be essentially everywhere. And if he be essentially present in all places, then he must also be essentially present with all creatures. Consequently, with the soul of man, which must therefore be supposed to be so intimately and immediately united to him, as to have its very being and subsistence in him, according to that of the apostle, in him we live, move, and have our being. God, it seems, is the foundation as well as the efficient cause of our existence, and the soul has her being in God as well as from him. As God penetrates and pervades her, so she dwells and subsists in God, who is the place of spirits, as spaces of bodies. Now this must needs infer the most inward and immediate union that can possibly be between two natures. To be more nearly united would be to be the same. If God be essentially present with the soul, and the soul has her being in God, then is not a necessary consequence that there is an immediate union between God and the soul? The apostle thought it so, who proves the very same conclusion by the same argument. He is not far, says he, from every one of us, for in him we live, move, and have our being. Acts chapter 17, verses 27 and 28. He is not far from us, signifies as much as that he is very near us, and that we are most intimately united to him. But how does the apostle prove this, our union with God? Why, because in him we live, move, and have our being. Tis from hence that he infers our nearness to him, or our union with him. We live in him. Therefore he is not far from us, but most immediately united with us. For he cannot be nearer to us than for us to live move, and have our being in him. Tis observable 
that the apostle does not say by him, but in him. To intimate the immediateness, the inwardness of his essential presence in union with the soul. And that this in him must not be understood of the mere power and efficacious influence of God, as some will have it, but of the very essence and substance of the divine nature is plain from the consequence drawn from it, which otherwise would be none at all. For it would be no proof of the nearness of God to us to say that we live in him, meaning by in him only his power and efficacious influence in preserving us in being. Such an argument as this would hardly have passed with the learned Athenians. Besides that, had this been the apostle's meaning, it would have been much better expressed by saying, by him, than in him. Which expression, therefore, both considering its proper natural emphasis and the conclusion which it is brought in to prove, can be supposed to intend no less than the essential and substantial presence of God, and that we live, move, and have our being in him, not only as the efficient cause, but as the inward basis and foundation of our life, motion, and being, sustaining and supporting us as space is supposed to do the bodies that exist in it. We are in God as bodies are in space. God penetrates our being and contains us, and we dwell in him. He is our place, that which contains us, that which supports us, and pervades every part of us, according to another very remarkable expression of the same apostle concerning God, that he is above all and through all and in us all. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 Then which nothing could have been said more expressive of God's essential presence to us and of that intimate, immediate union we have with him. So then God penetrates our essence and we dwell in his, even as space penetrates bodies, and bodies dwell in space. And what union can be imagined more close, more intimate than this? Or how can we be more nearly united to God than for God to penetrate us and for us to dwell and be contained in him? The union which we have with bodies, or which bodies have with each other, is nothing to this strict union which the soul has with God who indeed is more intimately united with his creatures than they are or can be with one another. This is the natural union of the soul with God, and thus all his creatures are united to him, as well as the soul of man. Bodies are thus united to him as well as spirits, and bad spirits as well as good ones, devils as well as angels, and the damned as well as the blessed nor is there any inequality as to this union, which indeed is so close that it cannot be closer. The brightest angel of light is not thus more intimately united to God than the blackest spirit of darkness. For God can but penetrate the substance of an angel, and so he does that of an evil spirit. And an angel can but have his being and dwelling in God, and so must also an evil spirit be supposed to have. As space is equally united to all manner of bodies, so God is equally united to all manner of spirits. The vilest piece of dirt and the brightest jewel or star are equally penetrated by space, 
and equally contained in it, and consequently equally united to it. And the same we must conceive of the purest and impurest spirits with relation to God, who equally penetrates and contains them all, and consequently is equally united to them all. The sum of this matter is, all spirits that exist are essentially united to God, for tis by this that they do exist, and should they be entirely disunited from him, they would cease to be. And this essential union between God and them is more intimate and immediate than any union they can possibly have with bodies, or with one another. And being so close and intimate as it is, it cannot but be equal in relation to them all. For this natural union of spirits with God, being founded upon his essential omnipresence, whereby he thoroughly penetrates and entirely contains their whole substance, it is plain that it cannot admit of more or less, but must be supposed equal in respect to all spirits, yea, all creatures that have any being, which they cannot have but in God, with whom they are therefore equally united. This natural union with God, therefore, though a great benefit, honor, and perfection, is yet no peculiar privilege of the soul of man, since all other creatures partake of it with her, her own body being thus as much united to God as herself. But there is another union with God whereof bodies are not at all capable, and which even spirits partake of more or less, which brings me to consider... Secondly, the moral union between God and the soul. That natural tie which fastens us to God so close that it cannot be strained closer. But though we cannot strain the same knot any harder, yet we may bind ourselves faster to God by another cord, by adding to our natural, a moral union. Now as the other is a union of our natures, so this is a union of our wills and is no other than the love of God. Whatever we love, we unite ourselves to, and the more we love, the more we are so united. Were it possible for a man to love nothing out of himself, he would not be in union with anything, but perfectly loose and free, separate and independent. But since every man is too defective within to love nothing without, there is no man but what is bound and chained fast to something or other. He that loves the world is united to the world. He that loves money is united to his money. He that loves God is united to God. And he that loves God most is united to him most. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, says St. John. That is, is nearly united to him, and in a more special manner, made one with him. For we all necessarily dwell in God, as having our being in him. This is that natural union which we have with God, and which all other creatures have as well as we. That dwelling in God, therefore, which St. John here speaks of, and which he makes to be the proper consequence and effect of the love of God, must be understood of a more special and extraordinary union, a union of will and affection, the same with this 
our moral union of the soul with God. This union of the soul with God will indeed never be complete in this world, where, as we know, but in part, so we love, but in part, and so are but partially united to God. For we are at present united to creatures as well as to God, and tis the unhappiness of most of us to be more united to the former than to the latter. And indeed the union we have with the creatures is so strong and fastened with so many knots that nothing can dissolve it but what dissolves us at the same time. Nothing but what separates soul from body will untie this knot. Nothing but death is stronger than this love. Spiritual death or mortification will indeed go a great way towards it, and we know a certain person who by this method arrives so far as to be able to say, The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. But this is a rare instance, and must be understood, too, in a qualified sense. For as long as we are in the body, we shall in some measure depend on what has relation to the body. And the world will still claim some sort of kin and alliance with us. And we shall never be able entirely to shake it off as long as we keep our mortality on. But this union will not last always. Death, that universal minstruum, will dissolve it. The same fatal stroke that cuts the knot of life will cut off the band too which ties us to the world, set us absolutely loose and free, and entirely disengage us from all the creatures. And then, if in that moment we have any true love to God, it will perfectly unite us to him. For being quite empty of the creatures, and having no further dependence upon them or inclination to them, we shall then love God entirely with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And as our love will be made perfect, so will our union too. We shall then be so united to God as to have union with nothing but Him, and with Him so strictly as not to be capable of ever being separated from Him. In the meantime, this moral union of the soul with God may arrive to a great degree in this life, though it cannot be absolutely perfect and complete but in the other. And as tis here attainable in great measure, so tis absolutely necessary in some. There is indeed a great latitude in this union, which admits of as many degrees as our love of God does, in respect of which one soul may be more nearly united to God than another, and the same soul may be more nearly united to God at one time than another. But notwithstanding this indefinite variety of increase and decrease in this our union with God, there is a degree of it that is fixed and immovable, and below which it can never fall. Even this moral union with God is necessary in some degree, as well as the natural. And though all spirits are not equally united to God in respect of this moral union, as yet they are in respect of the natural, yet they all are in some measure or other, and will always be. For as there is no spirit but what was made for the love of God, so there is no spirit but what does actually love him.
and adhere to him in some degree or other. Even the souls of the damned and the devil himself do in some measure love God, and are accordingly in some measure united to him. To love God more or less is free, but absolutely to love him is necessary and unavoidable. Every intelligent creature does so, and must do so, at least implicitly and confusedly, if not explicitly and distinctly. For every spirit, even those who are in an actual state of damnation, must love happiness, otherwise they would not be capable of being what we suppose them, that is, miserable. And all happiness being in the truth and reality of the thing, the very same with the enjoyment of God, tis plain that in loving happiness they have some general glance at God, and that he is at least the implicit and confused object of their love. Tis most certain that every creature that has understanding and will was made for the knowledge and for the love of God, and know him and love him they must, in some measure or other. For God cannot wholly fail of his end. They indeed may fail of theirs, in not contemplating and loving God to those degrees that they ought as reasonable beings, and which are necessary to make them happy. But there is an absolute necessity of their knowing and loving him in some degree or other, Otherwise, those their powers of understanding and will would wholly miss the end for which they were made, and so would be in vain and serve for nothing, which is absurd to suppose. But besides, is it possible that God should have any love for that spirit that has none for him? And if God should utterly cease to love him, could that spirit any longer exist? Can that thing exist which God does not at all love? Can anything be without the will of God? But spirits do exist, and always shall, as being immortal. And may we not hence conclude that God does in some measure love them, and consequently that they also do in some measure love God, since otherwise they would neither be loved by him, nor be at all. For there is no being out of the love any more than there is out of the essential presence of God. Should any spirit utterly cease to love God, he must needs in that very instant cease to be. For there is nothing lovely in the will of that creature, which is wholly averse from God. Consequently, God cannot love that will. Consequently, that will can no longer exist, unless we suppose anything to exist whose existence God does not will. And consequently, there must be an end also of that spirit, unless we can suppose a rational creature to exist without a will, and that loves nothing, which also, upon another account, will be the result of this supposition. For that spirit, could we suppose such a one, that does not at all love God, must not love at all, or must love nothing, for if he loves anything, it must be happiness, and if he loves that, he does at least confusedly and implicitly love God, as I remarked before. So then, every way it is absolutely necessary that all spirits should in some degree or other love God, 
and this moral union of the soul with her creator is no more perfectly and entirely to be broken off or dissolved than the natural. And thus far of this twofold union that is between the soul and God, I proceed now to consider the perfection that accrues to the soul from each. The whole perfection of the soul is either internal or external, from within or from without, either that perfection which she has in herself from the essentials of her nature and constitution, or that which she derives from her union with some other being. Now that perfection which she has in herself is so inconsiderable if compared with her natural inclinations, as was remarked in the beginning, that she is forced to go out of herself and to join herself to some other being more perfect than herself. That being to which we are all naturally united is God, and he is also the being to which we are all morally united in some measure. And tis in our power to strengthen and confirm this union by free and voluntary applications, and to make it more and more close and entire, till at last it be perfect and consummate, as I have discoursed already. But now, since our natural and inward perfection turns to so little an account, let us see what perfection is, which accrues to the soul from without, which she gains by her union with God. And first as to the perfections that result from her natural union, among which I consider, first, her natural being or existence. This is the first general perfection that accrues to the soul from her union with God, as she exists from him and in him, so does she also exist by him, or by her union with him. For God is the inmost support and foundation as well as cause of all his works. The whole creation rests upon him as upon a center, and he bears and sustains all things by his essence, as he produces all things by his will. As all things that are, are united to God, so tis by this their union with him, that all things are, and though it be not necessary that whatever is united to God should continue to exist, for then it would not be in the power of God to annihilate anything, yet tis essential to everything that exists to be united to God, and nothing can be entirely separated from him without ceasing to be. The only total separation from God, whereof a creature is capable, is annihilation. For should a creature exist, and not exist in God, pray what would be the foundation of that his existence? Or would he want none? That we cannot say. For if he want none, then a creature will be able to subsist in and by itself. And if it can bear such a solitude as this, it must be from such a perfection of his nature as involves independency in being, which cannot be, but in a being who is so perfect as to have existence essential to his nature. For only a necessary being can be an independent being, which perfection, if we once grant a creature, we shall leave nothing that will distinguish him from his God. We cannot therefore say that a creature needs no foundation for his existence, or that he can exist in nothing. He must therefore exist in something. But if that something be still a creature, there is nothing gained. 
for that creature being supposed not to be self-subsistent will still need some further foundation. He must therefore have God for the foundation of his existence, and stay his being upon the rock of ages. He must subsist by his union with him, who subsists in and by himself, whose essential presence is the great necessary preservative of whatever he has made, and who, as the scripture tells us, upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. Secondly, intellectual light. This is another perfection that redounds to the soul from her union with God. For God is light, and he that dwelleth in God dwelleth in light. God is truth, and he that is united to God is also united to truth. And how can an intelligent being dwell in light without being enlightened or be united to truth without being instructed? God has in himself the ideas of all things, that is, some such perfections in himself as answer to and represent all the degrees of being that are out of himself. This would be easily demonstrable, could I stand to do it, from the general nature of God, who, as being infinitely perfect, must needs be supposed to include within his essence, after an intelligible manner, all the degrees of reality, the whole possibility of being. But besides, how else could God make the world? How could he create, unless he be supposed to have in himself the ideas of all things? For though the world was made out of nothing, yet it must be made according to something. And where could that something be but in God? when as yet there was not anything existing but God, the natural existence of things is founded upon their ideal existence. And if things had not first existed in idea, they could never have existed in nature, unless you will suppose God to have acted blindfold and in the dark, without thinking of what he made or considering how or for what he made it. If God made all things with counsel and design, if his wisdom was then assisting to his power, as who dare say it was not, especially since wisdom herself says that she was present at the making of the world. Proverbs chapter 8. Tis most certain that he must have the ideas of all things in himself and that he made all things according to those eternal ideas. For there can be no design without thinking, and there can be no thinking without ideas, without an immediate object of thought, which could be no other than the essence of God himself, as being supposed antecedent to the existence of all creatures, which could then have no being but in the divine mind. If therefore God made all things with counsel and design, he must have the ideas of all things in himself. But if you will say that God did not make what he has made with counsel and design, besides the impiety and absurdity of the supposition, I know not what advantage it is to the creation to have had a God for its author, since blind chance or unaccountable fate would have done as well. Besides, had not God an eternal foreknowledge of all his creatures? But how or in what could he eternally foreknow them? 
but in himself and by his own eternal ideas. For God could not foreknow them as they were not, but as they were. If then God foreknew them from all eternity, tis certain that they were from all eternity. But they were not thus in nature, therefore they were thus in their ideas only, and consequently t'was not in their natural but in their ideal entities that they were the objects of God's eternal foreknowledge. God foreknew them from eternity as they were from eternity, that is, not in themselves, but in his own eternal ideas. And so, also, he must be supposed to know them now, not in themselves as they are out of him, but in his own ideas, unless you will suppose God to know his works now, since the creation, after another manner, than he did from all eternity, unless you will suppose a change in the divine knowledge, and such as is the worst too, it being an infinitely less perfect way of knowledge for God to know creatures in themselves than to know them in himself and by his own ideas. Upon these and several other grounds, which, were it not for running in too far into the heart of speculation, I could easily assign, it is a proposition of unquestionable certainty that God has in himself the ideas of all things, and that he sees all things in those ideas, and so is his own light. But now, what a perfection must it be for the soul to be united to such a being as this, to a being that is all things, and contains all things, to him who possesses all the eternal reasons and essences of things, with all their fixed and immutable habitudes and relations, who is essential light and substantial truth. Can a soul united to such a being want light? Or can she doubt whether she has her light from him? Whence else should she have it? Whence else can she have it? Or whence else need she have it? For if God has in himself the ideas of all things, and if the soul be united to this omniform essence of God, Tis plain that there is nothing wanting to the possible, nay, in some degree, to the necessary illumination of the soul, who, being united to God, must also consequently be united to the divine ideas, which, therefore, not only may, but in some measure must be the immediate object of her mind, which is all that I know of that is requisite to intellectual illumination. Tis therefore by our union with God and his eternal truth that we become rational and understanding creatures, who, if he either were not or were never so little separate from us, we should fall immediately into an intellectual stupor and silence of spirit, and should not be able to think one thought or so much as to be conscious of our very being. For God is the true light of all spirits, and were this light never so little eclipsed, an intellectual darkness would presently seize upon all minds, and the brightest intelligences would be struck blind. That they are not so now is purely owing to that union they have with the eternal light and truth, which becomes the immediate object of their minds, their intelligible light, their idea. And thus tis also with the soul of man, 
who partaking of the same union partakes also of the same intellectual light. As God sees all things in himself, so she sees all things in God, and tis by her essential union with him that she does so. Thirdly, the whole pleasure and comfort of our being. This is another and the most moving and engaging of those perfections which the soul derives from her union with God. Pleasure is a perfection of the soul, and when the soul shall be most perfect, as in the other state, she shall then be in the most pleasure, and as her greater degree of pleasure will then proceed from the greater degree of her union with God, so tis very reasonable to conclude that she has now some degrees of the same perfection from some degree of union with the same principle. God, as I have proved at large in another discourse, is the only true efficient cause of all our sensations, and consequently of all our pleasure. And tis by that essential union he has with us that he communicates this perfection to us. Did not God act in and upon our spirit by putting it into different modifications? It is impossible that we should have any pleasing sensations. And were not the soul essentially united to God, tis impossible that he should any way act upon it. For there is no such thing as action at a distance. Properly speaking, either in the operations of the creature or in the operations of God. The power of God is not of a further extent than his presence, and it need not, since his presence is infinite. Nor is God anywhere efficaciously, but where he is substantially. There is no such thing as a mere influential presence of God. If God were not essentially united to the material world, he could not communicate any motion to it. And if he were not as essentially united to the intellectual world, the world of spirits, he could not communicate to them either light or pleasure. For if God acts, he acts by his will, and his will is himself. And consequently, he can act nowhere but where he is. Tis therefore our essential union with God, which makes us capable of his acting upon our souls, and whereby we come to have all those sentiments of pleasure and joy wherewith they are at any time affected. But besides those particular sensations of pleasure, which are occasionally, and upon some certain impressions excited in us, we cannot but find a certain general sentiment of pleasure that accompanies our being, and which does not come and go, off and on, as our other sensations do, but remains fixed and permanent, and maintains one constant and uninterrupted steadiness. Though we have no particular occasion of joy or incitement of pleasure from anything without, from any of those sensible objects which surround us, though all things about us are silent, and our own thoughts too are no way engaged upon any object extraordinary, yet we feel a certain pleasure in our very existence, not in our being thus or thus, in this or that state of mind or body, for I abstract at present from any particular sensation, but absolutely and simply in our being, in our being conscious to ourselves that we are. This general pleasure of mere being, 
for so I think it may be fitly called, every man may much better experiment than I can describe. And I believe there is no man that has conversed intimately with himself, but who is sufficiently sensible of the thing I would express. Now this pleasure accompanying our being as such, it will be necessary to suppose it inseparable from all intelligent beings while they exist. Even those who are most unhappy, who though they may have it so outweighed and overset with misery that they were better to be without it than pay so dearly for it, for I cannot be of a mind with those who will have it better to be, though in extreme misery, than not to be. Yet have it they must, as long as their being lasts, though it be so drowned and overwhelmed in a contrary sentiment, that they cannot enjoy the sweetness of it. But now whence should this general pleasure of mere being arise in these miserable beings? Not sure from any positive or direct act of God, as our particular sensations do. For it cannot be supposed that God, by any express will or act of his, would reward those wretched spirits with pleasing sensations, who deserve his severest anger, and whom he is then punishing for their demerits. It must be then resolved into that essential union that even such spirits have, for otherwise they could not be, with the infinite and all-being God, who is so excellent an essence, so sovereign a good, that there is no being united to him without being something the better for him, without partaking of some degree of pleasure. So then we owe our whole pleasure and comfort of our being to our union with God. Were it not for such, we should have neither light nor warmth. Darkness and desolation, privation and sterility would be our portion. We should feel nothing, nor know nothing, nor so much as be. And thus far of the perfection that redounds to the soul from her natural union with God, I shall now briefly consider that which proceeds from her moral union with the same principle. Here I might show that the love of God, for that is what we understand here by his moral union, is the truest key of knowledge, according to that sublime aphorism of a great man, Amor Dei est lux anime, that it brightens the understanding, as well as warms the affections, clears the head as well as enlarges the heart, and gives to the soul an open and a free view of the greatest and noblest truths, both in nature and in religion, that it is the best teacher and instructor in theory, and the best guide and director in practice, the best expositor of scripture, the best resolver of doubts, the best distinguisher of the will of God, the best decider of cases of conscience, and the best moderator and composer of disputes and controversies in religion. And in one word, that as the fear of God is the beginning, so the love of God is the perfection and accomplishment of wisdom. But this being matter of experience more than of notion, I shall rather apply myself to consider how the love of God perfects the will of man, which is the proper seat of it. As the love of God has an effective influence towards the perfecting of the understanding, so is it the immediate and formal perfection of the will. For it is the perfection of every power or faculty to be employed about its proper object, 
and in prosecution of its proper end. Now God is the only proper object and end of the will, not only because he is, as I have elsewhere shown, our only true good, as being the cause of all our pleasure and happiness, but also because the will of man was made for the love of God, and for him only. Twill, I suppose, be readily granted me that the will was made to love as much as the eye was made to see or the ear to hear, this being the whole use and purpose to which it is fitted to serve. But to love what? Was it made to love itself? But how can a finite being be its own end? Or was it made to love any of its fellow creatures? But stay, if the will be made to love a creature, then the same creature that is the end of this will must also be the end of God too, who is supposed to make it for that end. But now can a creature be the end of God? Can God desire or aim at anything out of himself? Or can God act for anything out of himself? How then is he a being infinite in perfection and every way self-sufficient? But suppose it were possible for God to have any end or aim, to desire or propose anything out of himself. Yet why or to what purpose should he do it? For is God not infinitely wise? And must he not then love that which is most lovely? And must he not therefore love himself more than all other things whatever, and so make himself the end of all his actions, and consequently of his whole creation? All things, then, are made for God, as well as by him, and he is the end of all his works. If therefore the will of man was made, it was made for God. And if it was made to love, it was made to love God. And indeed, there is no other way of conceiving how the will should be made for God than by being made for the love of God, who can no otherwise be its end than as he is its object. I conclude, therefore, that God is the proper end and object of the will, which was made only for God and the love of God, and is then consequently in her greatest perfection when employed in the love of him that made her, and for whom she was made. The love of God is the greatest moral perfection of the soul, puts her in a right frame and posture, and entertains her with the divinest joy and pleasure, sets her above the tyranny of concupiscence, and all her other troublesome passions, raises her beyond the mean joys and unreasonable griefs of life, and is the best antidote against the terrors of death, conforms her will to the will of God, and is a stay to her in all the revolutions of his providence, exalts her above the insipid entertainments of the world, and helps to support her under the sense of its emptiness and vanity. In one word, makes her fit to relish her union with God here, and disposes her for a stricter and more beatific union with him hereafter. And thus have I considered that double union which the soul has with God, natural and moral, and those respective perfections which result from them, and which she enjoys by virtue of them, whereby the truth of that great and sublime theorem we laid down may be in some measure illustrated, that is, that the perfection of the soul is her union with God. Here is the Fons Boni Lucidus.
the bright and ever-shining fountain of good, the well of life, the spring of joy, the water of comfort, and the river of pleasure, and happy is the soul that shall bathe herself in it. The deeper she wades in these living waters, the higher the tide of her happiness rises. For here is her whole perfection, natural and moral, all that she enjoys and all that she is ever capable of. But if the whole perfection of the soul be in her union with God, if it all resolves into this point, what is it then to be separated from him? And what must the condition of those wretched spirits be who have no more union with God than what is just enough to sustain them in being and make them capable of subsisting under that privation of God, which would otherwise annihilate them? What must be the darkness, what the poverty, what the barrenness, what the coldness, dryness, deadness, emptiness, desolation, solitude of such a state? Depart from me, ye cursed. I need not add into everlasting fire, for here we have hell enough already. What to be thrown off from our center, to be forced away from the point of our tendency and our rest, to be banished from the only good, the joy, the pleasure, the life, the light, the warmth, the sun of our souls. I hath not seen, neither hath ear heard, nor can it enter into the heart of man to conceive what a state of misery and unhappiness this must be. If the partial and short eclipse of the light of this great sun made even the lion of the tribe of Judah roar out in a bitter agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What must be the misery, the damnation, the hell of that spirit who is thoroughly and eternally forsaken of his God? It is good then for me, may every rational soul say, to draw near unto God, since my whole perfection, both natural and moral, consists in my union with him. It is good for me, indeed the best thing I can do, to hold me fast by my God, to unite myself to him by as many ties and bands as I can, by all the cords and chains of love, and by every link of that chain, to make this union as close and as strong as possible, and so to draw near to him and fasten myself upon him by the most cleaving love that he may reward my imperfect union here with a perfect and everlasting one hereafter. This is the true and only interest of every rational soul, though there are but few that are so rational as to be duly sensible of it, or that consider how advantageous, how necessary it is for them to draw near unto God, and to enter into a close union with Him. But to those few who are sensible of the interest and necessity of this union with God, and would know by what means they might be best assisted towards the effecting of it, I would advise 1. To retire. The noise, hurry, business, impertinence, folly, sin, vanity, and contagion of the world do not well comport with either the habit or the practice of divine love. The spirit of devotion and divine application cannot breathe in such a thick, gross air. As is said in the Song of Songs, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. 
let us lodge in the villages, is the voice and language of the spouse of Christ, and so it is of every devout and divinely affected soul. And says God to his church, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. Solitude and retirement is the proper advantage and opportunity of divine love and of uniting our souls with God and of relishing and enjoying that union, the sense of which made a devout soul once break forth into a seraphic rapture. O solitude, O sacred rest, sweet refuge of the laboring breast, unknown to crowds in whose calm ways blessed spirits walk in joy and praise, how thirsts my soul from toil set free, retired to dwell with prayer in thee. Here, hear the gales that gently blow, the paracletes own peace bestow. No din of civil discord heard breaks the still comfort of his word, nor darkly brooding over the soul the clouds of guilt in terror roll. But oft where nature's glories rise, breathe round mysterious harmonies that tell the hermit's purged ear of angels' harps and voices near. Here wisdom in her quiet cell bids the turmoiling world farewell, the wrangling mart of aching strife that drugs the worldling's cup of life and wild ambition's storms that lure above the gilded roofs of power. Here, day by day, in balance just, the conscience measuring well its trust. With hope reviews its gain with prayer, strives its lost treasure to repair, bathing with tears its steps to win the heights once lost by mortal sin. Choose, then, who will the stately halls where wealth and power and splendor calls. Be mine the silence of the breast, the reign of lonely peace and rest. Deep hidden to the world unknown, seen by my gracious God alone, this the best art that life can give to God and to myself to live. 2. To Contemplate And now thou art retired, thou mayst advantageously do so, and must, if thou wilt ever unite thyself to thy God, and kindle in thy heart a seraphic flame of devotion and divine love. The will always receives its orders from the understanding, and we love everything according to the view which we have of its amiableness. If, therefore, thou wilt raise in thy soul a well-grounded and affectionate love of God, place him before thee in a good light, and take an advantageous view of him from the elevations of contemplation. Meditate upon him frequently and attentively, for he will bear that severe test. And contemplate the infinite perfection, the sovereign goodness, the transcendent excellency, the centrality of his divine essence. Think of his beauty, think of his loveliness, think of his love to thee, and whilst thou art thus musing, the fire will kindle. 
Psalm 39, verse 3. 3. To mortify. The very harsh and ungrateful, but very necessary method for the love of God and our union with Him. We must first die to ourselves and to the world before we can either love God or live unto Him. Mortify, therefore, both thy body and thy soul, but especially thy soul. Purge it first of all self-love, which of all dispositions of mind is most opposite to and inconsistent with the love of God. Next, empty it of the world, and of all love towards sensible things. Unburthen it of all covetousness, ambition, pride, lust, envy, and all manner of carnal and worldly sentiments. Cleanse it, purify it, strip it, simplify it, let nothing adhere to it that favors either of self or of the world. Nothing that may by its interposal hinder that immediate contact, that central touch between thee and thy God. And when once thou hast reduced thy soul to this singleness and simplicity, thou wilt find that the least attraction of the Divine Spirit will draw thee after it. When once one scale of the balance is thus emptied of the creature, the least weight of the Divine Grace will weigh down the other. The more we draw off from ourselves and from the world, the nearer we shall draw to God. And the closer we are united to Him, the nearer we shall be to our happiness, and the more we shall be still convinced as we draw nearer and nearer that the perfection of the soul is her union with God, to whom be all glory. Amen.